Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We were talking earlier about the jobs report that came out today. Highly distorted data. 33,000 jobs lost, but better than expected wage gains. So a kind of convoluted picture. You got traders taking the better uh, information out of that and trading on that. Uh, Meanwhile, you have Jonathan Farrow of Bloomberg Television saying this is just confirmation bias that traders are trading off of. Here to weigh in on that and perhaps confirm that or perhaps... Debate that. Constance Hunter, chief economist at KPMG, joining us now. Constance, uh, do you think that it's uh, totally ridiculous to try to trade around a number that is so hard to decipher given the hurricane disruption? Well, I think that depends on how good you are at trading. Um, so for some people, it might be worth it, while others, it might not be. Um, certainly for a retail investor, it, trading around this number is is ridiculous. And and like there's there's looking through the long-term data, and I think I think what we're seeing here is not just the traders are trading on the wage gains, but they're trading they're looking through this long-term data. So if we look at, for example, comparing this to one of our last major hurricanes, Katrina, in in Katrina, 1.5% of the workforce said they were either not at work or at work part-time, but they usually work full-time due to the hurricane. With the combination of Irma and Harvey, that number jumped to almost 3% of the workforce. So that is a lot of lost jobs. But you can also see that it's temporary, right, that these people are going to come back to work. The biggest sector that lost jobs was leisure and hospitality, 111,000 workers. And obviously, those those establishments were closed. They're going to reopen. Those people are going to go back to work. So if you look forward, you can see that the momentum in the economy is still there. What I tweeted out earlier this morning, is the streak is broken, but the economy is not. I thought that was a great headline, by the way, Constance. I thought Thank was, you. Yeah, I thought that was really... Every once in a while, Pam. I no, it was uh, really, I commend you because it really captures exactly, you know, the, the perspective that you're offering. And in that context, I'm wondering if you can offer your thoughts that uh, these one-off events that are no longer seemingly one-off, whether they are natural uh, disasters uh, like hurricanes or um, you had, of course, uh, I think back to Fukushima uh, in Japan, you have these events which, uh, I, you know, you always hear those debates about whether they're more frequent or less frequent, but to put that aside, the fact that they exist on a semi-regular basis, does that mean that it, it, you need to adjust your focus when, when you're thinking about where to put your money? Well, I think certainly there's uh, there's a there's a perception that they're more frequent, and the data would suggest that with the warmer water temperatures, they're going to continue to be more frequent. But um, in thinking about the economy overall, uh, what you have to think about is, is the economy strong enough to withstand the shock that such an event would prevent or, big or enough, would, would really. cause rather? Uh, I'm sorry. Or, or I was going to say or big enough. I didn't want to give it any characterization, just that the, the U.S. economy is so big and the country is so big that it can it accommodates these large shocks. 
Yes, it can if we're if we're in a period of strong growth. If we're in a period of weak growth, it could have a it could have a greater effect. And and understand we haven't seen the full effect of the hurricane. So, you know, our estimate is that it could shave 0.8 to 2 percent off of GDP in the third quarter. And a lot of that is going to be from this lost income that we've had. Um, and a lot of it's going to be from the fact that that a lot of these people that were hit certainly in in Harvey were not in flood zones, so they were not appropriately insured. Uh, so it, it is going to take a bite out of GDP, but um, overall, it, I think the economy is strong enough to withstand it. The big question mark is if you look at the, the pressure point in the economy in terms of employment, it really is in that construction sector. So we've seen wages grow up in that sector. We see scarcity of workers in that sector. And if people are deployed down into uh, Florida and Texas to take care of this rebuilding, it's going to put pressure on the rest of the economy and that sector throughout the entire economy. And you could see ripple effects that, that do impact the entire economy. So, Constance, we're probably going to get this muddy data uh, from the hurricane for another couple months uh, at the least, frankly. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, what are you looking to in the meantime to sort of get a better read on the true economic progress being made? Let's let's just take this jobs report in general, right? So you have the household survey where you saw big improvements in the labor force participation rate. You saw the unemployment down to 4.2 percent. Um, you can look at a lot of uh, real-time data. So you you can look geographically around the rest of the country, not just in in Florida and Texas, but if you look at the rest of the economy and look at some of the the regional data, you're able to see the strength of the economy overall. Constance, earlier today, Martin Feldstein, uh, who is uh, president emeritus at the National Bureau of Economic Research, he was speaking on Bloomberg Television. And one thing that really just struck me was he said that the U.S. needs a corporate tax overhaul. He said they need this overhaul and that it is crucial if the U.S. debt increases and that we have to bring our practices in line with other industrialized countries. Do you agree with that? And do you think it will happen? Ah, well, um, so Martin Feldstein's been giving a series of talks. He um, he gave a talk at the National Association for Business Economics last week in Cleveland, which addressed this. And so just to put it in perspective, he's looking at a, at a headline rate of about 25% um, is what he thinks is realistic and, and, of course, keeps in mind the fact that we don't want to increase debt levels or increase our, our budget deficit substantially. But we do want to bring our tax um, policies more in line with the rest of the world. I have a little bit of a disagreement, though, on the worldwide income taxation. I think we should have a holiday. I think we should get that money back on shore. But we are also the only country in the world that is the reserve currency. And that is a privilege that costs money. Um, it is a benefit to all U.S. companies. They are able to transact in dollars. Um, it means their, their exposure to currency risk is much more limited than other, uh, other countries' uh, companies. And, and, and this costs money. It costs money to um, maintain a military that, that – um, that works all over the world and and guards the trade of those goods. And so I think something like a 3 or 5% permanent tax on offshore income would be reasonable. And there are a lot of other countries that do this. They give a much lower tax rate yeah. to money earned offshore. Um, so that that would, I, I think, be one disagreement between me and Marty Feldstein. But but he, he is right that it, our code has become overly complex. It's overly complex for individuals. It's overly complex for firms. And so simplifying it would certainly free up resources to be used for other things in the economy. 
You know, I just want to just make a quick note that uh, U.S. Treasury yields are actually coming in and there's a bit of a, a rally in treasuries. And uh, one trader noted that it's because of new reports coming out that uh, Pyongyang, North Korea, is uh, preparing to test a missile capable of reaching the U.S. coast. Uh, that is according to a Russian lawmaker. And so this is what people are attributing it to. So. Yeah. Well, we will certainly uh, keep uh, keep abreast of that and bring up any uh, news or headlines that uh, are related to that, of course. I want to thank you very much. Constance Hunter is the chief U.S. economist at KPMG, giving us her views about the jobs report and the potential uh, for any kind of corporate tax reform. Right now, I want to turn our attention to markets. We saw a, uh, a real uh, sort of gain in Treasuries yields come down after news was reported that uh, a Russian lawmaker says that North Korea may test long range missiles that could potentially hit the West Coast of the United States. The stock market unfazed. Really, nothing can shake this market. And to really talk about that, I want to bring in Ernesto Ramos, head of equities for BMO Global Asset Management and portfolio manager of the BMO Low Volatility Equity Fund, which trades under the ticker MLVEX. Um, Ernesto, I'm struck by the fact that you're seeing a longer lasting effect from these sort of nuclear scares in the bond market than in stocks. And, and, And stocks just shrug everything off. What do you make of that? Well, that's one of the things that I've been personally surprised about, how much the stock market has ignored the potential for geopolitical uh, risks and, and conflagration. But uh, what's driving the market is earnings, to be to be honest with you. If you look at the S&P 500, the earnings growth that consensus estimates for next year is strong double digits, close to 20%, and for the following 12 months is another 10%. So that kind of earnings growth, if it comes down to, to, to fruition, will continue to drive the market higher. Now, of course, if you actually get some kind of a, a war with North Korea, um, it, that, 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 that scenario will, will definitely not happen, and, and you're going to get some, uh, some retru- serious retrenchment in the market. And that's why the low volatility fund would be a good way to stay exposed to the market, but with a fair amount of downside protection, because that's the way we've designed it to, to behave. Uh, Ernesto, can you use the stock, the company Align Technology, as an example of the kind of company and investment that you look for for your fund? They make the Invisalign uh, dental product. Uh, sure. Uh, Invisalign, uh, it's actually, uh, the, the as you said, uh, the, they make the, 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 the seamless uh, braces without, without wires. And, and the two things are, are driving their growth. Number one, they're starting to penetrate the teen market. They had previously been focused on the adult market because adults don't want wires in their mouth to show. But now uh, teenagers are also becoming very, very self-conscious and aware that, that the, the, this technology can help them stay less, less uh, visible in terms of their braces, and they're embracing that. And that's in the U.S. They're also beginning to tap into overseas markets. And as you are aware, if you travel around the world, you are aware the United States has the best teeth in the world, and everybody else 
not so much. So there's a huge market uh, outside the U.S. for better-looking smiles, and that's what uh, Invisalign is starting to tap into and, and deriving a lot of growth from that. Ernesto, is it possible to create a low-volatility fund without using derivatives? Sure. We just focus on, uh, first of all, there's two parts to our process. First of all, selecting the stocks and they're combining them in a way to reduce the the, the risk. And uh, we what we do is we have a lot of data and a lot of computing power to at our disposal. We look at the risk in five different ways and we're able to rank the stocks from highest to lowest risk, and then also from highest to lowest in terms of a uh, return potential. And what we do is we seek a good combination of very low risk stocks with attractive return potential. And that's what we deliver in a very well calculated and and balanced uh, portfolio, which is, is what our fund turns at the end of the day to be. I'm sorry to just keep you in the weeds about Invisalign because I'm always interested in how much something costs, right? And so you, you're willing currently to pay $15 billion for a company that does a billion two of sales and has net of about $240 million. That works for you. That math works for you. How fast they have to grow to justify that? So, uh, yeah. So our scoring system, I, I know it trades at about 50 times next year's earnings, and that it seems very expensive. But our scoring system for, for return potential has three parts, fundamentals, valuation, and sentiment. And they score not so well on valuation, in fact, rather poorly, but well enough in terms of fundamentals and the sentiment part that the overall score is still attractive enough to make the grade in, in our fund. And we're very, very disciplined about not trying to second guess our, our scoring system. And, and, and we, we'll stick to that because that's how we've achieved the kind of performance that, that we've delivered so far. Well, uh, we want to appreciate you coming in and shedding light on this. Uh, this is a, an interesting fund. M-L-C-I-X uh, is the uh, the symbol for the fund. Thanks very much for being here. That is the BMO Large Cap Growth Fund. And I want to thank uh, Ernesto for being here. Uh, he always great a pleasure. Ernesto Ramos, he is uh, the manager of the fund. Co-manager as well? Co-manager. Okay, co-manager as well. He's the head of uh, equities at BMO Global Asset Management. We want to learn more about municipal bonds, and that means we need to learn more about Puerto Rico. And joining us, of course, is Joe Mysack. He is the editor in charge of our Muni Brief product. And um, Joe, I want to just read you the quote that uh, from President Trump when he was in uh, Puerto Rico recently. He said, they owe a lot of money to your friends on Wall Street. We're going to have to wipe that out. That's going to have to be, you know, you're going to have to say goodbye to that. I don't know if it's Goldman Sachs, but whoever it is, you can wave goodbye to that. What was your reaction when you heard that? And then tell us, is there a basis for using any of that in order to make the situation and the lives of the people in Puerto Rico better? Well, when I... uh... I, I I missed the first go round of that, and about three a.m. when I was uh, looking to put together the brief, I uh, saw that comment and I was uh, dumbstruck. Uh, I just said, "This is historic." I've never heard a president sort of take out the whole entire municipal bond market, which is, uh, as you know, uh, sort of based on 
law, the rule of law, um, would it make the people's lives on Puerto Rico, would it improve their lot? I, you know, if you somehow thought that the president ruling by fiat and taking away all the debt, I don't know who would lend to them. Well, okay, so so stripping aside the sort of improbability and the unprecedented nature of the suggestion that President Trump threw out there, uh, let's talk about the reaction, right? Bond plun- uh, prices plunged on Puerto Rico's debt, particularly the general obligation bond that matures in 2035, which is sort of their benchmark issue. Uh, there is a big question as to why, given the fact that pretty universally it's totally understood that President Trump is uh, does not necessarily have the power to throw out this debt, nor does he have the inclination to do so. Uh, the administration walked back his comments uh, subsequently, and yet prices are still depressed from where they were. And I'm wondering what we can make of this. Does this mean that all of a sudden, in some ways, uh, the bond uh, market is actually getting more realistic with respect to what recoveries are going to be like with the Puerto Rico debt negotiations? All right. See, now you've uh, you've put your finger right on it. Um, You know, bonds trade 30, 60 or 90, you know, 90 and above. Everything is fine. 60, Bonds are getting in distress. 30, that's sort of the salvage value. People are speculating at the salvage level. And at 44 cents on the dollar, which was the the day previous, uh, I guess it was uh, Tuesday, at 44 cents on the dollar, Puerto Rico was probably still too expensive. Those bonds had not dropped enough. Uh, So perhaps the, you know, perhaps it was the Trump comments. Perhaps it was also final realization that, well, there's a lot of damage in Puerto Rico and there's a lot of devastation and people are leaving the island. And finally, you know, there was that break. And it was a funny, it was not funny. It was a, it was a very interesting thing to watch because the 30 and a quarter price was, uh, uh, that was, you know, on a $475,000 block of bonds tossed out at 916 in the morning. You're talking about the low point that we saw in these general obligation bonds, which is one slice of the $74 billion of debt that Puerto Rico has. Right. So 30 and a quarter, some dealer threw out that, you know, and and the owner said, what kind of what kind of volume? Um, This was a four hundred and seventy five thousand dollar block. So that low price was was printed at nine sixteen in the morning. So a lot of the coverage you saw made you think that there was this horrific, uh, you know, people are rushing for the gates. But the volumes were high by the end of the day. Oh, it was about $185 million traded, which was a very large amount for that bond. Haven't seen that much volume in the 8th of 2035 in, you know, certainly weeks and weeks, probably months. Um, But what really happened was that there wasn't this rush for the gates at the end. In fact, there were twice as many buyers as sellers of these bonds. And... Uh, the prices started climbing, uh, you know, after that 30 and a quarter, basically. You know, they they banged around a little bit, but it was very orderly. And, uh, you know, by the end of the day, I think we're up, uh, you know, around 39 cents. So what does that tell you? I really do not know why someone is buying Puerto Rico geos at this point. And yet they were buying and in all various sizes.
Well, but somebody could argue that if uh, the U.S. federal government does give money to Puerto Rico to help restore its structure and keep people there, uh, that this will actually be a net benefit for the island down the road. There's still those clinging to the hope. What's the rebuttal to that? Well, the island did say the debt was not payable and entered into the Promisa and Title III bankruptcy. And they, the island, you know, says we need some relief here and there will be negotiation. Uh, What are you going to get? Obviously, the people who are buying at 33 and 34 and 38 cents are, are betting on a higher recovery value, maybe 50 cents, maybe 60 cents. Who knows? Um, but it's it's difficult to imagine. Uh, you know, for the longest time, the, the hedge fund guys were saying geos at par. Right. And they really believed it. Well, not anymore. Mm-hmm. Joe Mysack, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.